Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to our second episode of Grassroots Health. Thanks for listening. My name is Dr. Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. Today's episode is entitled The Fractured Healthcare System of the United States, or is it really a sick care system? Did you know that there are many published research studies that show the United States healthcare system is only responsible for maybe 12 to 20% of our health status? And yet, 95 to 97% of our investment in health goes to this failed sick care system. Huh? No way. That can't be right. Well, you heard it right, and I'll say it again for emphasis. Although our sick care system, some would call it health care, is only responsible for at most, at most 20% of our health status, we invest almost all of our health care investment in that failed system. Why? That makes absolutely no sense. Exactly. What kind of financial advisor would invest like that? So let me ask you then, what does influence our health? To put simply, people's health is influenced most by their ecology, the interrelationship of all living and non-living things around them. Things like the quality of the air they breathe, the water they drink, the food that they eat, the amount of green space available to them to enjoy, whether or not they're employed, the quality of their home, apartment, and neighborhood, the quality of their education that they receive, the reliability of their transportation, their political leverage, and people all around them. We call these things the social determinants of health, the causes of the causes of health. Unfortunately, the United States is among the worst of wealthy countries in the world in investing in these types of things. Furthermore, as I said in the first episode of this podcast, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. Wealth and power just keep getting more concentrated in a smaller percentage of U.S. society while the vast majority of us just keep losing ground. And as a result, in the United States today, healthcare keeps getting more expensive for employers, for individuals, and for families, and all of them are struggling more than ever to pay for it. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation that I like to follow, about half of U.S. adults say they have difficulty now affording health care costs. Half. Furthermore, about 4 in 10 U.S. adults say they've delayed or, or gone without medical care in the last year due to high cost. You see, it's important for you to understand that the high costs of health care often prevent people from getting needed care or from filling prescriptions. In fact, about a quarter of adults, 25% of adults, say that they themselves or a family member in their household have not filled a prescription, have tried to cut pills in half, or skipped doses of medicine in the last year because of high cost. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think happens when you cut your prescription medicine pills in half and you're trying to ration your meds? What do you think happens to your health? So let me ask you this question. Who do you think is doing this? Who's reporting rationing their meds, not getting care because of high cost? Well, the answer is clear. Those in households with lower incomes, black and Hispanic adults, and women. You see, high health care costs disproportionately affect uninsured people, underinsured people, black and Hispanic adults, and those with lower incomes. Healthcare debt is a burden for a large share of us. About 4 in 10 adults, 41% to be exact, report having debt due to medical or dental bills, including debt owed to credit cards, 
collection agencies, family and friends that they borrowed money from, banks, and other lenders that they've had to borrow money from just to pay for health care costs. So who does this debt burden affect the most? Please guess. Well, you probably guessed correctly. Black and Hispanic adults, women, parents of dependent children, those with lower incomes and uninsured or underinsured adults. So now we have terrible situations like the woman who personally told me about five years ago that she faced an awful choice. She could either pay rent and keep herself and her kids in the apartment or pay for her cancer treatment. Hmm. Which would you choose? She chose rent. And five years later, I don't know if she's even still alive. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest speaker today, Dr. Jonathan Ross. Have you ever met someone who really impressed you? Well, today's guest, Jonathan Ross, is someone who really impressed me when we first met. The year was 1996. I was a spring chicken. I was only 37 years old. I had earned my doctorate degree from U Toledo about one year prior in 1995. In 96, President Bill Clinton won re-election by defeating Senator Bob Dole. Some of you remember. Gas, how much do you think a gallon of gas cost back in 96? I had to look it up. It was a buck 25 on average. That'd be nice. And the cost of a first-class postage stamp was only 32 cents. I was employed by Mercy Health System at the time, and I was charged with overseeing the education and training of family medicine and transitional medical residents. Through the grapevine, I kept hearing about this Dr. John Ross character. At the time, he was chairman of internal medicine at St. Vincent Mercy Medical Center. My sources told me that he was a proponent of a single-payer healthcare system and was very good, very dynamic public speaker. So I called him up. I invited to come speak to our medical residents on Wednesday afternoon when we had what we called our didactics. I think it was from 1 to 4 o'clock. When I met him, he didn't speak that long, by the way, but when I met him, I could immediately tell he was very intelligent. He was also very good and very interesting public speaker. He was great. And I marked down in my mind, this is a guy I want to stay close to in the future. Little did I know that our paths would cross again after he and I both left Mercy Health System. Dr. Jonathan Ross is an associate clinical professor of medicine where I work at the University of Toledo. He's also past president of a very prestigious national organization, Physicians for a National Health Program. He graduated from Cornell University. He received his medical degree from the Medical College of Ohio at Toledo. He did his residency there as well and earned his master's degree in health policy and administration from the School of Public Health at the University of Michigan. We won't hold that against him, we who are Ohio State fans. As I mentioned, when I met him in 1996, Dr. Ross was chairman of the Department of Internal Medicine at St. Vincent Mercy Medical Center. Suffice it to say, he was very smart, articulate, and he saw our healthcare system for the fractured system that it was, and that's what attracted me to him. So here he is in an interview on Grassroots Health. Let's listen in and tell me what you think. Well, welcome, everyone. This is episode number two of Grassroots Health Podcast, and today... I have an old friend with me. I don't know if I should say old. Old as um, <laughs> Yeah, I have a friend that we've known each other a long time. I was thinking as I prepared for this, John, I think we met around 1995, maybe 96, when I was with Mercy Health System in charge of family practice and transitional residency programs. And so... Uh, I'm here today with Dr. John Ross. Dr. John Ross is a longtime internist in Toledo, Ohio. And as I said, I met him when I was with the Mercy Health System. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, 
you know, we're here talking about the fractured healthcare system of the United States. Uh, how did you get interested in this topic? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, one of the things that no one ever talks about in medical school is money. You know, how the money flows. And so it's a little bit like, you know, when you were a kid and no one would talk about sex. It's a little bit the same. I mean, you've got people who are, you know, kind of pocketing that money, but not really talking about it. And you knew that the doctors that you were seeing as a medical student and as a resident were doing quite well. You could see that in the parking lot by looking at their cars, right? And you could see that those that the people who were running the healthcare system were also doing pretty well. But it, no one ever really talked about the organization of the system. And it was something I was always curious about. There was actually a program called the Robert Wood Johnson's Clinical Scholars Program where when you finished your residency, you could get a chief residency and also get a public health degree at one of the best public health schools in the country. And uh, I was thinking about doing that. I was applying for it uh, at the end of my residency when, when one of the professors there uh, told me that there was an on-job on-campus program. And if I would stay and teach and run the outpatient uh, clinic for St. Vincent, which was a large teaching hospital here in Toledo, uh, that he would go to bat for me and make sure that the hospital paid for my public health degree at the University of Michigan. And after I did that, I got involved. Uh, I was thinking population health. You know what? That's what we really need here. And I got involved with uh, the uh, health maintenance organization that was a 501c3 charitable run by the Catholic nuns at this hospital in coordination with two other hospitals in town that were also Catholic hospitals. And what I learned over the next few years is that there was no good work to be done in the health insurance industry, that it was a race to the bottom. And at that point, I began looking around, well, you know, if we can't really do good population health within the private health insurance industry, because the, the, the main job of the health insurance is to avoid taking care of sick people. And I could tell you some war stories about that if you want to hear them, but they're kind of a sideline on this, but that... If I really wanted to, to get everybody covered and doing well, we really needed a healthcare system rather than a sickness care non-system. And uh, I began looking around for what groups were involved in trying to look at that, and there were really two. Uh, and that was Physicians for a National Health Program, which was a brand new group that had published in New England Journal in 1990, I think, uh, a pro proposal for an improved expanded Medicare for everybody in the U.S., had no sense of history about that kind of a proposal at that time. I have much better sense of history now. But it appealed to me, and I went to one of the meetings, and the people were my kind of people, and I decided I was going to get active and organize for a national health insurance based on Medicare. It had to be improved and expanded, but we could do it. And I was very convinced looking at the preliminary numbers that were coming out from it, including a CBO report uh, on uh, – a single-payer bill, Medicare for All, back in the 1990s, early 90s. So that that's kind of how I fell into the movement. And then there's the public health community. And again, those are my kind of people again. They're looking at population health, but they're recognizing that to deliver population health, you've got to have a structure to do it. So that's kind of the background on it uh, for me, at least in terms of how I got involved and, and got active around this. And I has all started right around 1990 to 1992, um, leading into Clinton's first election. And uh, so we were kumbayaing outside of uh, the Capitol building in Little Rock trying to get Clinton to agree that he was actually going to do a national health insurance program based on Medicare. And instead, we had kind of a catastrophe. And that's kind of been the re repetitive history. If you go back and look at the history of health reform in the U.S., there's been these waves of attempts and failure and attempts and failure. And it's been going on for 100 years. So, Yeah, I think the, when we first met, which would have been probably 95, uh, you were kind of young in the movement. Um, and True. that's why I had you come in and, and talk to our residents to talk about you know, the healthcare system and single-payer system. And so what's the name of the organization that you got involved in? Yeah, I actually got involved, as I said, in the early 1990s uh, with Physicians for a National Health Program, pnhp.org, if you've got people out there who want to look at it. But there's about 20,000 doctors now who at one time or another have paid dues to that organization and are, or might even be a little more than that now, and who are involved. And I, I was on the board for, for a decade or more, uh, they had past presidents stay on their board for a while. That's all been revised. We're much more modern, appropriate organization now. But I was president in uh, 2001. 
uh, of physicians for national health programs. So between uh, 1990 and 2001, I had kind of gotten that involved to the point where I, I was actually uh, elected president. Yeah, that's fantastic, being president of a national organization like that. You know, you mentioned public health being your kind of people, and I'm glad to hear that because I'm in public health. I know. That. <laughs> so uh, you can probably see behind me I'm at the university. <laughs> Say again? Not, not just flattery, Tim. No, I really, public health are some of the most amazing people in the world. I, I, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to be involved. I'm still very much involved in, you know, my, my caucus. I help to put together the program for my caucus every year at the Public Health Association meeting with another professor of public health it's at SUNY Stony Brook, Martha Livingston. And so uh, we try to put on very edgy, progressive stuff every single year. And Fantastic. Well, you know, I, I teach, still teach public health students. In fact, I'm here in my office at the University of Toledo, as you can see behind me. Um, and I have taught students this for many years. They come into class and they, they've almost been brainwashed. You know, they think that we have the best healthcare system in the world. And, you know, go, number one, we're USA, USA. And do, do we really have the best healthcare system in the world, John? No, well, certainly not the best healthcare system. I, here's what I usually say in, in response to that question. We have the best doctors, the best nurses, the best hospitals, the best equipment, the best research in the world, and the worst possible system for delivering care to everybody that needs it. And that's kind of what our problem is. Uh, you know, we have a sickness care non-system. We do not have a healthcare system. It doesn't go back to look at enough, uh, starting to a little bit, the social determinants of health. And to what extent can medical care actually influence those? Or is that something that is in a whole different domain, the domain of public health and the d domain of government responsibility? So, you know, it's very hard to improve a system when you don't have a system. Or, or what you have is a system that may, mainly is a, a business system for making money rather than trying to deliver health to everybody who needs it. So, no, we don't. And all the statistics would suggest that depending on what it is you want to look at. Do we cover everybody? Nope. Almost all the other rich countries in the world cover everybody or darn close to it. Are we less expensive? Nope. We're the most expensive. Do we have the best health outcomes? Nope. We have pretty crappy health outcomes, especially given we're spending, uh, compared to some of these other systems, twice as much. So it's pretty clear that we don't have the best healthcare system in the world. We could. We have enough resources. We're wealthy enough. We've got, like I said, the best docs, nurses, hospitals, equipment, labs, research. That we have, it's all there. The infrastructure is all there. And I might add that that infrastructure we will all pay for all of it. The only question is, how do we go about paying? And can we turn that payment system into actually a healthcare system? And that's why I've chosen to support an improved expanded Medicare for all, because it's proven its durability. It's proven its constitutionality. What we need is to take it, amend it, and make it work for everybody. Hmm. Let's talk about costs for a minute. You mentioned healthcare costs. You know, we do spend more than... 11 other peer wealthy countries. Uh, we have the worst healthcare outcomes of all of them. Uh, what, what, what do you think accounts for the cost, the high cost of healthcare in the United States? Yeah. If you want my diagnosis, and, uh, you know, obviously you got me on to talk I about do. it. Uh, my diagnosis is the complexity stupid, right? Remember when Clinton wanted to say it's the economy stupid? In healthcare, it's the complexity. It's the financial complexity. We have a gajillion middlemen at every single level of our healthcare system. And the idea is, I mean, I think this is kind of, again, something that we're brainwashed into, that market forces are going to fix this in some way. If we just had a marketplace or if we just had people experience uh, the need to make wise decisions with their money in healthcare, that that would improve it. And the fact is, is that's completely baloney. And there's been um, uh, Nobel Prize winning economists like Kenneth Arrow, who wrote a paper, you know, what's it been now, almost 50 years ago now. Uh, maybe a little more than 50 years ago, talking about why you can't have an effective market in healthcare. I'll just give an example, a, a couple of them real quick. Number one, if you needed open heart surgery, surgery and it was on sale, would you have two? Right? So that's, it's preposterous to say, no, you don't want the first one. You've got to have it. 
So in, in, in some ways, if you think about this, for those really expensive and complicated things that we might run into and need, healthcare, the way it's set up now financially, it's like highway robbery. They have a gun at you, right? You will buy this or you will die or be disabled or have worsening of your health, right? So, so if, if we had somebody out there on the street uh, uh, selling pens, right? with a gun in their hand telling you, you're going to buy this pen for $10, we'd arrest them, right? So the whole system is set up with this sort of bogus idea. The other thing is, in a marketplace, the consumer needs adequate information to make wise decisions about what they're going to purchase. People come into me with, uh, I'll use chest pain again. Somebody comes in to see me with chest pain. I don't know if I'm going to end up prescribing $5 worth of an anti-acid or $150,000 worth of open heart surgery until I do some really expensive things to be sure. You know, now sometimes you can say, wow, this is a 25 year old's probably, you know, and they're tender in their chest. Sometimes you can sort it out pretty early, but a lot of times you can't. And so you've got to order tests that are very expensive and the patient isn't buying them, you are. And there's a lot of, shall I say, self-dealing in the medical field, whether it's at the level of the hospital or the level of the emergency room or the level of the uh, primary care physician. I mean, there's a lot of self-dealing out there where you, either because you're frightened that you might miss a diagnosis or you're doing extra expensive tests, or maybe you've got an interest in the imaging lab or something else like that. I mean, there's a a lot of conflicted self-interest out there in the healthcare system that means that as you're kind of at the mercy of uh, of the providers to make sure that they're really operating in your best interest. And if you set the system up to say to the doctors, you'll make more money just like we insurers will if you give less care to the patient, I don't think any of us want to be in a system like that. And, and I think that's what we're slowly learning as Americans, that the market is not going to work. You can't pound the square peg of healthcare into the round hole of, uh, you know, of market forces you know, they may be shouting, get me a bigger hammer, right? That's that's how they're responding to it. Mm-hmm. Well, what's more market forces? Yeah. You know, they want skin in the game, they call it, right? Well, it ain't a game. And I know who's getting skinned. I can see the patients when I see them in front of me who's getting skinned here. So, so the fact is, is that it just isn't going to work. And if it's not, you know, and when you can go back and look at all the different market um uh, which I'll call it market entrepreneurialism that's been applied in healthcare, whether it's HMOs, PPOs, uh, ACOs, everything but Cheerios, right? You've got all these acronyms that are supposed to put more responsibility on the doctors and patients to control costs. If it was working, we would have the least expensive healthcare system in the world, not the most. So the first rule of holes is if you're in a hole, stop digging. And so what we've been doing is trying to apply the same old hammer to the square peg of healthcare, trying to pound it into the round hole of market forces. It ain't going to work. And so let's look for something more systemic and something that is modeled already all over the world. And even here with Medicare, we have systems that are universal that kind of work. So let's look at those. Let's learn from them. Let's have the best healthcare system in the world. So that's what I've been advocating for. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Medicare already being kind of a universal government-controlled, what single-payer system. We do have that, and people squawk when they talk about you know reducing Medicare reimbursement. Uh, the seniors squawk about that; they like it. And I think if I think if the American public realize that the government systems do work pretty well, maybe we can move towards a government system of healthcare for younger ages and people that can't afford insurance. Let's talk a minute about the impact of the pharmaceutical industry, big pharma. You've probably, in your field, you've probably heard of Dr. Abramson. He's a family practice guy. I think he practiced out in Northeast Ohio for about 22 years, then started testifying in court uh, for, I guess there were lawsuits against big pharma, uh, were brought, and he was testifying against them. And that gave him access to data that he says, he claims doctors do not see those who set like recommended guidelines for doctors do not see. What's your take on that? Do you think the big farm is responsible for some of the cost? Absolutely. I mean, if nothing else, uh, you know, you've got clear cut evidence looking at other countries who are spending half of what we do uh, to purchase the pharmaceuticals. 
I mean, you'll remember that when we had the Medicare get covered, which was for me almost a miracle for some of my patients because we were doing, again, war stories, all kinds of crazy things to try and get people medication before um, before the uh, uh, Part D of Medicare was passed, which covers drugs. But within that deal that was cut, again, sadly, by the Republicans, you know, again, market forces are the cure here, they said that we couldn't actually use the single most obvious market force, which was negotiation. Uh, so you got a huge entity covering, you know, hundreds of millions of people like Medicare uh, and Medicaid combined. And if you negotiated for drugs, other countries like Denmark, what is that, like 9 million people, they're getting 40, 50, 60% off on medications negotiating with the drug companies. But oh, within our Medicare Part D, absolutely forgiven. What they said was, ta-da, we need another middleman. We need pharmacy benefit managers. And believe me, that's about, uh, I should be careful here, but you know they are, they are <laughs> passing money back and forth under the table trying to get their drugs on lists for these private health insurance industries. And now with the consolidation of the health insurance industry, they're actually buying the pharmaceutical benefit managers and the pharmacies. So now we've got integration between health insurance, the pharmacy uh, uh, benefit managers and you know, the pharmacies all along the way, they're taking their piece all along the way with a whole, again, a absolute uh, army of bureaucrats who all are on the payroll. So, yeah, drugs cost twice as much. They're designed to cost twice as much. And believe me, they don't want it to change. Most of those pharmaceutical uh, CEOs are making tens, even hundreds of millions of dollars a year um, when you include their stock options. So they don't want it to include Including during this current pandemic, the, the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten poor. And, and yeah. those people that are ahead of Pfizer and Moderna have had, I mean, their stock options have gone up 20 and 30%. Yeah, and so that's not, not too shaky if I had something I mean, going up 20%. All these people, I mean, and let's do by, by, by comparison, let's look at a governmental system, right? So if you want to look at uh, the bureaucrats who run the FDA, they're making, you know, 250, 250,000, not 250 million. <laughs> okay. Like something yeah. pharmaceutical. And you've got, uh, Chiquita Brooks LaSure, who is the current head of HICFA. All of Medicare and Medicaid is under her overall supervision. She's making about 220, 230,000, uh, not million a year. And these guys are, you know, it's just preposterous. We can get good people to run our healthcare system for a lot less money than these robber barons, right? Uh, but do you think they want it to change? And now that your money is your speech and that corporations are people, you've got real problems with trying to keep them mm -hmm. polluting our, our healthcare system with more lies and enough money to kind of whitewash almost anything they want to whitewash. Yeah, I know, you know, we're not supposed to talk politics, but so oh, what? I talk well. politics. <laughs> and I, I, I teach it all the time. It, it seems like to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, but... Under Republican presidents, they always are cutting public health. There's no emphasis on single-payer system. They're cutting environmental regulations. Everything related to health and medicine seems to get cut. And the, the answer is, let's let the market forces drive things. And you've just pointed out, it doesn't work. Under Democrats, it's no, no, just the opposite. Is that your impression? <laughs> we have to be clear who it works What's for. What's that? You have to be clear who it works for. Yeah. It works for people who are already very well-to-do and rich and powerful. That's who it's working for. It's not working for ordinary Americans. And, and you know, sadly, they're not, you know, I remember I was at a, uh, at a uh, senior Olympics, you know, trying to be the weekend warrior athlete that I like to be. And I had on a shirt that said healthcare for all. And some guy came up to me and said, that's socialism. <laughs> so the streets are socialized. The sewers are socialized. The cops are socialized. We have the biggest socialized bureaucracy in the world. It's called the U S armed forces, not all that bad or shabby. You know, we can do things together when we need to using our government and the fact, say government can't do anything right, that's just not true. Now, mm. will it be hard? Yeah, it's going to be hard. We're going to be fighting uphill against a lot of very wealthy people who don't want it to change. I mean, if you were making $200 million a year as a pharmaceutical exec, do you want it to change? If you're making 10, 20, I think, 
No, I don't want it to change. I like that kind of money. I don't. I don't even touch that kind of money. <laughs> you wouldn't want it to change. I mean, think about this. I mean, this is the business decision that these guys get paid tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to make every year. I get to keep a fixed percentage, or maybe a little more than it is right now, of whatever the U.S. spends on healthcare. Okay, do I want them to spend less? I'm going to get a percentage of whatever they spend. They're right in the middle of it, right? Why would you want that to go away? Of course they don't. Of course they don't want a system that's efficient, effective. The last thing they want is for the healthcare, for the population to be healthier. You'll sell fewer drugs. You'll sell less health insurance. Da, 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 on, down, on, right? So, so the fact is, is they have no interest in either controlling costs or getting us healthier. But we do. We have an interest in that. And in short of applying our are uh, talking to our friends and neighbors and organizing ourselves to work on this, uh, we won't get it. You know, we'll get whatever they give us. And they ain't giving us a, a good healthcare system right now. Let's, let's change gears a little bit. I want to talk about healthcare being linked to someone's job. Um, it, it's interesting to me that in the United States, healthcare benefits are often linked to full-time employment. Mm -hmm. are, are we unique across the world that way or not? Pretty much. Uh, there are other countries that have mandatory premiums that businesses must pay. Uh, I think the, the Dutch and the Germans kind of work that way. They have what are called sickness funds, and your employer has to contribute money to these sickness funds, which are independent of the business, Right. And they act kind of like not for profit health insurers. Right. And so there's a few countries that, that do it that way. And then there's lots of countries that do it using taxes of one sort or another. Um, or they have mandatory premiums where you have to purchase insurance. There's no choice about it, but they limit what portion of your income you have to spend on it. I and mean, Switzerland would be that example. They, they say you, you have to spend up to 8% of your income to purchase from these, again, not for profit public service health insurance companies, right? You got to, you got to buy from them. I think the Dutch have one or two for profit ones, but almost all these other countries, these sickness funds are not for profit. Uh, and that was kind of the, what's called the Bismarckian system because way back in the 1880s, uh, there was a lot of revolutionary fervor, even in Germany. And, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, was worried about that. And he got Bismarck, his, his, uh, henchman, his, his prime minister, to look into what sort of social supports he could give to working people. And one of them was to start kind of a sickness care system in Germany. And so it was already there in 1911. Now, Teddy Roosevelt, who had already been president, had decided not to run for a second term. He was over in a junket uh, to Europe looking at these things because he was pretty socially conscious and he saw an effective working healthcare system in Germany. And he came back and decided to run for president again on the Bull Moose Party, uh, the Progressive Party. And he proposed that, and it was picked up by the American Association for Labor Legislation, which was kind of a progressive labor uh, group, including health economists and other people like that, uh, social uh, services type people. And they went ahead and proposed that, that that be a plank in the progressive party. So the first president to actually propose the national health insurance system was Teddy Roosevelt. Now, not long after that election, we were at war in Germany, right? Well, the Brits were, we came in later, but... Uh, nothing German was going anywhere. But the idea didn't die. And all through the 20s, there was discussion about it. And then in the 1930s, uh, Franklin Roosevelt wanted to include a national health insurance system as part of his New Deal. He has, one of his good friends was Dr. Morris Fishbein. Morris said, you do that, you're going to tank the whole thing. You won't get workers' compensation. You won't get works projects. You won't get any of the stuff that the country needs. Leave health care alone. The doctors will go ape if you try to. So we didn't get it. His wife was disappointed. She was very much a supporter. Then we had Harry Truman pick that up because by the end of the 1930s, we actually had bills in Congress. So from uh, late 1930s, we had the, the Wagner Health Act and then the Wagner-Murray-Dingle Bill, which were through the 1940s. Truman tried twice to get those passed and failed, went to sleep again through the 1950s. By the 1960s, activism was back, and what we got was half the apple. We got Medicare and Medicaid passed, which was is a wonder. Was that under was that under Lyndon Baines Johnson? It was under Johnson, and again, John, it was interesting because it, these are rare events. He had Congress, he had the White House, 
he had big enough majorities to, to push stuff through. But there was still a lot of compromises that went into Medicare and Medicaid. And uh, it's a wonderful history. If you go to the um, Medicare website, you can read the history of Medicare. It, it's, it's a wonderful story about all the back and forth dealing that had to go on. The AMA was violently against it. They hired a B-movie actor named Ronald Reagan uh, to make a record. <laughs> it's serious. You can still look at this online if you want. Look it up. Uh, Reagan actually became a spokesperson for the AMA. And there was something called Op Operation Coffee Cup where doctors' wives were supposed to get this record and invite the other doctor wives to their home to listen about how national health insurance would, would be the, the slippery road to communism as far as Ronald Reagan was concerned. So, yeah, this history is, is deep and wide, and we've been at it for a long, long time, and we're still at it right now with, you know, with some incremental stuff that's happened in the in-between. Better than nothing, but it's really been never going to be enough to control costs without a true system. And it seems like now we're we're so divided, um, so divisive in politics. We look at people on the other side of the aisle as enemies. There's no collaboration. There's no compromise anymore. The only thing that gets done is often by the president writing something into law himself, and, and there's no legislation. Um, so I, I don't know until until the political scene changes. I, I really don't have a lot of hope. I know under Clinton, Hillary Clinton tried to in install a universal health care system. Having your wife do it, who is not an elected officer, probably was not the wisest choice, yes. even though she was very bright. Bill, Bill forgot. And then one. under uh, Bill forgot that? one very important thing. Bill forgot one very very important thing. He was the most powerful man in Washington D.C. Who are the next most powerful people? committee chairs. So he put his wife right. where the committee chairs usually sit, shaping a bill that was going to cover everybody in the U.S. Oh, boy. he had there, So when, when his plan went down in flames, which was you get to choose between this big HMO, that big HMO, the next big HMO, the, choose one of those and they're going to be your health care system. Uh, you know, he had no support within Congress because he had not allowed the second most important people in Washington, D.C. to get on board. Now, contrast that with Obama who came in and said, I'm willing to spend this amount of money, I think it was $100 billion, get busy, Congress, bring me a bill. If you don't bring me a bill by date certain, then I'm going to propose a bill. That's a whole different dynamic, right? Okay, it's your responsibility, guys and girls, get busy, bring me a bill. And so we actually got something done. But these opportunities where we control Congress, I'd say we, but where uh, people, progressive forces actually have some uh, influence with Congress or have influence with the president and they have the, what's it called, political capital to actually get something done. They're pretty rare. They only come along once in every decade or two. And so, uh, you know, it, it's a tough, it's a tough lift. Now, because of that, in the past, I've kind of been a support, uh, been supporting thinking about a, a large state that has the infrastructure to have a state do it first. Because if you look at the history of hard things in America, things that were really tough to do, they required a movement, organized people who were demanding it in the streets most of the time. Maybe look, let's take women's right to vote, right? The, the first state to give women the right to vote was Wyoming. Why Wyoming? It wasn't a state. And once they gave women the right to vote, they had enough people to become a state and became, and still are, the most overrepresented population in the U.S. They got two senators and a house of reps, which is what they still have, right? The most overrepresented population in, in the U.S. Uh, bottom line on it, uh, all the other states or entire territories realized that at least they could get more reps in the House of Representatives, and they weren't women, but they all gave women the right to vote. One person, one vote now. They got more reps because they were a higher population, or these other places that were territories became states, again, by giving women the right to vote and became more powerful in national affairs that way. So uh, it went down very quickly at the state level. So by the end of the, uh, the 1800s, every state had given women the right to vote. 20 more years of fighting, women in the streets, chaining themselves to the White House gates, going to jail, being going on hunger, hunger strikes, force-fed, okay? And finally, in 1920, for the very first time, women got the right to vote for president. They could vote for senators, the House of Reps, all that for 20 years, but could not vote for uh, president. So, so these are hard things, right? I mean, the hardest thing was fighting to get rid of slavery. I mean, we killed 
hundreds of thousands of Americans or more, I don't know what the numbers were, they were if you include disease, probably a million Americans fighting over the issue of slavery. I mean, these hard things often, um, you really take a, a long time to get done. And uh, I would consider this, but if you look at those hard things, uh, things like child labor laws, uh, the right to unionize, uh, there's a whole bunch of others that I could go through. Uh, and matter of fact, I'll do the last one, which was a family and medical leave. Couldn't get it done. Clinton tried to get it done. Couldn't get it done. Who did it? California. Said, we don't care. We're going to do family medical leave anyway. Oh, the sky will fall. Didn't fall. You know, businesses will lose money. They didn't lose money. So, uh, and then eventually it recycled back into uh, Congress and got passed. So a lot of times you've got to prove that the sky won't fall, you know, with the program. So I've kind of been a supporter in the past, but there's just a lot of barriers doing it one state at a time. A lot of barriers, and I won't go into the details of that, but, you know, we've had um, legislation here in Ohio since 1990 for a single payer in Ohio. Uh, and we still have legislation that gets introduced every time. Lately, with the, the dudes, and it's all dudes, pretty much in charge, they won't even let us have hearings. We've had one hearing in the 30 years I've been active on this here in Ohio. We've had one hearing uh, to talk about it. And, and, and so many people wanted to testify, testify, it went two days. So, I mean, the fact is, is people are more and more coming around to understanding it. The question is, is, is can we create uh, a mass movement at a time when there's a president and a Congress that wants to act on this and actually make it happen? But I still think there's possibilities it's in, in a state. New York has a very uh, good, popular uh, movement to go for a Medicare for all type system in the state of New York. California actually tried a couple times and there are reasons they've, they've got special barriers in California that make it a difficulty. But I think if we can get a state to do it, a big one, it would probably have to be they need a big population and a big infrastructure that can do everything that needs to be done. If we could do it, I think it'll be successful, save money, cover everybody. And then what's the barrier now? Look, we got one that's working. You can actually see that in terms of Obamacare, because with Obamacare, Romney put Obamacare into place in Massachusetts before it became national law uh -huh. and was functional. Was it great? No. Did it cover everybody? No. But it at least opened up some gates and covered a significant new chunk of people. So I'm not surprised that Romney Care became Obamacare because they had a working state model. And if you mm -hmm. look the history of politics in the U.S., a lot of the hard things, you need a state model before it'll go nationally. If national is incremental. 50 states, 50 chances, you know. So this is a good, a good chance for us to put in a plug for Andy Slavitt. Andy <laughs> Slavitt. Um, I listen to his podcast every time it comes out in the bubble. And Andy Slavitt was President Obama's fix-it guy. He, he was hired kind of late in the game to come on and fix the government website. And Obama noticed that Andy had a lot of ability, his background in business. And all of a sudden, he was doing a lot of things with the Affordable Care Act. So. Uh, I don't know if Andy Slavitt will overhear this, but this is a plug. <laughs> if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't listened to his podcast in the bubble, it's really good. Yeah, There's right. a lot of different guests on there. Um, let's, let's head down the home stretch because we're running out of time, John. Um, you mentioned people in the streets, that it takes people in the streets. You know, this, this podcast is called Grassroots Health, and we like ideas to come up from the bottom and be led by people. Let's take Ohio. Because I, we have a, a Republican legislature, we have a Republican governor. I don't see that going away quickly. Yeah, they've got but a do you think if we if we did <laughs> gerrymandered to the that? nines, we're gerrymandered to the nines. You know, yeah. it's going to be very difficult to to bust out of where we are right now because they they won't pay any attention to the Supreme Court on this or on school districts. I mean, it's just like they are out of control down there in terms of what you would normally yeah. consider as a representative democracy. There's, they're fixing the game. And they're not just doing it here. They're doing it everywhere. And it was a deliberate plan put in place 10, 20 years ago uh, to pack the courts, to gerrymander the states. This, is, this yeah. has been their conservative plan for a long time. We're a little slow because we still believe in democracy, right? And we're thinking, well, we have the people, but, man, you can really fix the game if, if, if you do it the way they've done it. But I'm sorry. Do, do you think if we do you think if we educate people to get in the streets to take control, a grassroots of, uh, approach? Do you think that would work in Ohio? All by itself, no. 
I mean, we still need legislative champions. We have a few. We could have more, you know, if we made this an issue because, you know, the old saying about politics, right? You build a parade, the politicians will run to the front and hold a sign, right? But you need the parade. Somebody's got to build the parade, you know, because they love to look like they're uh, progressive politicians. To some extent, love to look like they're progressive. And how better than to to be, you know, at the head of a parade? I mean, so you do. You have to have people who are willing to do that kind of grunt work and get others interested and involved. Healthcare is especially difficult because the people who are most abused in our healthcare system are the poor, the vulnerable, uh, the chronically ill, um, and they don't have the wherewithal to get into the streets. I think that was one of the reasons why my colleagues and physicians for a national health program felt that we needed to build a movement of progressive physicians who really saw the injustice in the healthcare system and wanted to fix it. Would it be enough to, to have tens of thousands of physicians in the street? It certainly wouldn't hurt. Okay. And we've tried. We, we've done a few civil disobedience things when uh, Obamacare was being discussed. Uh, improved Medicare for All wasn't allowed a hearing at all. And so we had uh, seven nurses and doctors who were in um, Max Baucus's, uh, uh, he was head of the finance committee in the Senate, in his Senate hearing on Obamacare. And one by one, they each stood up and said, we want to talk about and improve Medicare for All. Arrest that person. Cops came, dragged him out. Next one stood up. Arrest that person. And, and at one point, Baucus says, we're going to need more cops. <laughs> I, mean, I guess you <laughs> if, you, if you won't listen to the people. But we, we, we couldn't even get an opportunity to testify. Now, here in Ohio, we mm-hmm. actually did. We've been doing our lobbying and trying to work with, with uh, in the less crazy of the right-wing legislators. And we actually got a hearing in the, incentive, uh, in the House Insurance Committee. Like I said, it went two days here on our single-payer bill here in Ohio. So you can kind of nibble at it, but I think if people won't demand it, we won't get it. But more and more people are moving into that underinsured category now, right? So you got people who are, you got the un- under, <laughs> uninsured who have nothing, then you got the underinsured who are getting the huge surprise bills and not able to see the doctors they need and dealing with all the catastrophes that healthcare costs can, can, can deal at them. And uh, then you got the unsure, right? So you got this educational piece that you're talking as well. So that's what we're doing with uh, SPAN Ohio, Single Payer Action Network of Ohio. I've been working with them. It's a lay group in the state. Uh, and then I'm also doing that same work in Michigan now, now that I'm retired and have more time. Uh, I'm helping to organize um, lay people in Michigan, in Michigan for single payer. So, so there are opportunities. There are people out there that want to organize around this, and they need to hear the sort of stuff that you're producing right now, which is, you know, giving a message of hope and possibility to people around actually having a healthcare system that you'd want your children and your grandchildren uh, to be cared for in that kind of a healthcare system, not to mention yourself and the other people you love. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why we're doing what we do, right? So I remember uh, Dr. Amy Thompson and I here at the university, we, we put together a Center for Health and Successful Living, which was primarily a, a cancer survivorship center for breast cancer. And it was mostly African-American and a lot of African-American women or black American women, they didn't have a, a lot of financial resources. And I'll never forget this woman came back to our conference room, which is down the hall to my left. And she said, Dr. Jordan, I had to choose between getting chemotherapy and surgery for my breast cancer or rent. And I think a lot of people, there's a growing number of people that are facing that decision today. Do I feed my family? Do I buy groceries? Do I pay rent? Or do I get medical care? And I think that's the group that maybe we can tap into who's most affected, those who are poor, and help mobilize them, help help them to advocate for a single-payer system. Because I, I do think there are tremendous advantages over what we have. What we have is not working. And to continue to think that it's going to work, continue to repeat the same, the same thing is, as Einstein said, is a measure of insanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, not, it's not going to change unless we change it. We the people, the Americans, have always been... We, the people, have to change it. So last word to you, John. Anything that you want to say to our listeners? It's, it's hard to uh, to argue with that. I mean, it, you're right. We will get uh, the best healthcare system in the world when we demand it. Uh, you know, we know that there is no change without a demand. 
And so it's kind of our job as progressive public health people or, pro or progressive physicians or nurses, because the nurses unions now are up in arms on this and they know that the healthcare system is unjust as well. It's, it's on us to demand it. And that means political power, that means organizing, that means uh, voting and hoping that we can can move move it forward. We'll get another opportunity, I suspect, at some point. I don't know when it'll be. I don't know if it'll be in my lifetime. Um, you know, there's an old joke about a, a longtime health activist like myself dies and goes to heaven, and, and God says, yeah, you really worked. It was great work trying to get everybody covered. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I'll give you one question that, that I'll answer for you. And so some some nut like me says, well, will America ever have a decent health care system? Oh, yes, just not in my lifetime, meaning God's lifetime, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. This <laughs> is a heavy lift. You have to recognize it's a heavy lift. And most of us, I think, that are in the health reform movement will take the scraps and the bits and pieces if we can. And, you know, we got 20 million people covered with Obamacare. We waste a lot of money doing it, Right. Uh, but uh, you know, we'll take the scraps better that somebody gets care than not get care. I mean, we still got 30 million who got nothing. I mean, you, one of the things you kind of, I'll throw this one out before we quit, the issue about lines, because people, people all have to wait for care. Well, I don't know how you average in 30 million people who have an infinite wait, right? We have no statistics in America about what everybody is doing waiting, plus with all the barriers from HMOs, PPOs, ACOs, limited networks, financial barriers, we have no idea really what our waiting times are, you know. Uh, so to me, this whole notion, you know, no system, no info, too. No data, can't fix it. So we need, we need a system to fix. And until we actually have a system, it's going to be really tough to fix American health care. And especially with all the money and greed that's out there. So that's kind of my... I agree. Organize. That was a great conversation today. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Jim. I enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. This is Dr. Jonathan Ross, longtime internist here in Toledo, Ohio, and he's now retired, but he's not retired. He still works. He's still still very busy, still very active in a lot of things. Jonathan, thank you for coming on Grassroots Health today. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Tim. I'll, I'm Take running care. through the tape, man. I'm running through the tape, okay? That's how I feel about it. Gonna All do right. It. <laughs> See you later. Keep Thanks. Keep up for the good work. Thank you, Tim. Take care. Bye-bye. The 1795 Group is very happy to tell you about Andy Slavitt's In the Bubble podcast, produced and distributed by Lemonada Media. You know, every day it seems like the world is on the brink of a crisis. There are just so many serious issues. But you can join Andy Slavitt and various experts on his podcast to make sense of it all. Andy's been called the outsider's insider for a reason. I personally believe he knows everyone. As a former White House advisor, author, crisis response leader, Andy simply finds the right helpers to get us moving forward together, smarter and calmer. Get in the bubble today. In the Bubble Podcast is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.